Hello and welcome to the Sideshow Podcast. We are so excited to present for our first podcast of the season, Mike Seaman, who was my first through fifth grade teacher at Highlands Elementary School in Edina, Minnesota. Today we'll talk about his life on the run. In this conversation, we'll hear about Mike's time with cancer and how Zen Buddhism got him through those times. And of course, his time and our time in the classroom back at Highlands Elementary. So thanks so much for joining us. And remember, more information is always on SideshowTelevision.com. younger than Kristen? Yes. So you came to Highlands when you were in first grade and she was in fourth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my first experience with you and to have your older sister and of course she and Olivia were great friends. And then so I had you first grade, second grade, and if I remember correctly, in third grade is when you went to England, right? Mm-hmm. And then you came back and I had you for fourth grade and fifth grade. Yeah. Yeah, um, so we missed that missed that one year in there, which was uh, was great for you and your family. I know you had a great time in in, uh, in England and your uh, travels in Europe. But wow, I really missed your leadership as a third grader, quite frankly. You know, in that older room because you were that was one of the one of your to me one of your greatest assets is uh, your interrelational interpersonal skills and how uh, that led to your uh, your leadership skills. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. It all started from that classroom. I will just say, like, I have the best memories of first through fifth grade. We had that amazing structure of continuing progress um, where, you know, you were in the same classroom with first through fifth graders for five years. And it was all, and I just, looking back, I feel so grateful that the things that we learned were more just about kindness and integrity and honesty and then knowing that like all of those math skills and english skills will come as long as you just feel you know supported and really um i I don't know i got a lot out of those other students as well from just all kinds of ages i wish every school was like that yes it's it's obviously very unique um hardly any schools like that in the united states learn for that old one room schoolhouse model uh, and it was it was great for students, you know, the younger students to have the older kids to watch after them and, and uh, do the role modeling. And then the expectation, of course, is that as, as the younger kids got in the third, fourth, and fifth grade, to be able to do the same for the younger kids. Um, pretty powerful, I thought. Yeah, right. Felt so simple, but did did so much for me. And then, I mean, just on the theme of what we're talking about today, a couple of memories I want to share. I mentioned this to you. Um, the labyrinth that you built on the blacktop where we all used to just play. I would love to talk more about that. And then also, I really do think that my first introduction to any kind of Zen theory or Buddhism at all was in your classroom, probably when I was like nine or 10. Um, You gave a story, you gave an example about how Zen and Buddhism is really similar to the ideas of fashion (laughs) and how... Fashion is always consistent, consistently changing, but you know exactly what it is. And at the moment, it really feels right. So that was something that you said. You could articulate it much better now, but I just remember being so young and that one example sticking with me like through now. And of course, I don't know a lot about it. I've done all the introductory readings and 
I've meditated for a couple of years, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it all comes back to that simple theory. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it really is. You know, and I, I probably don't know or don't remember some of the, some of those Zen type Tao type of, uh, things that we talked about so much because I don't think it was ever part of a, part of a lesson plan or anything like that. No. It sort of happened, you know, through the course of conversation or situations that came up. Um, but when I think about the, you know, the life skills and the lifelong guidelines that we had in the classroom that sort of came uh, as part of our, our thematic study, I mean, so much of that is, is, is Zen-like as far as I'm concerned, you know. And, and as we added to our life skills, we added some of those, some of life skills such as honesty, generosity, um, which really fit in uh, quite well with, you know, like, you know, I think it's five basic precepts of Zen Buddhism. And they, they, they fit into that, I think, quite nicely. And uh, I just started thinking about the world. Like when we talk with parents, um, in December, parents would come uh, who were looking to place their kindergartners the next year, and they would talk with the CP teachers. And so the eight of us were together in a, uh, in, a in a big room filled with about you know ninety to hundred parents, and and then we'd break out in our small uh, classrooms where my teaching partner and myself would talk about what we do in the classroom. And every time we got into that kind of a setting. And parents asked me to explain what I did in the classroom. I always used the word spirituality. Hmm. It's interesting because you know, in a public school, <laughs> you know, I mean, some people might be offended by that. But I always thought we're not talking about religion, of course. We're talking about spirituality hmm. and how you relate to to the world around you, and how you how you sort of have levels of. Uh, of importance in your world, you know? And for me, that when I was younger, that used to be human beings are the most important creatures on our planet. Mm. They're more important than anything else. And then below that is animals, and some animals are more important than others. And then below that, you have plants, and below that, you have inanimate objects. And it wasn't until I had cancer mm. and I traveled west uh, to California and started to interact with people who had different philosophies, spiritual philosophies than I had, uh, and started reading books um, about Native American healing, uh, Buddhism, about macrobiotics. That was, that was the main key for my healing was, was uh, macrobiotics uh, nutrition. Um, and then I started to sort of put into, put into play, <laughs> you know, I just, we, we all should, in my opinion, at least, we all should be on an even level. Uh, and um, and that way we have great respect for uh, for all those other things, the plants, the animals, and inanimate objects. And I remember frequently looking out of a room there with that beautiful uh, crab apple tree that flowered in the springtime, and mm. and these incredible branches going out. Some of them almost parallel, you know, three four feet above the ground, but then going out parallel to the ground. And, and in the wintertime, the snow settling on that gray of the top of those branches and then birds coming and, and eating some of the berries that were still there, uh, even eagles and hawks that would land on those branches mm -hmm. and, and talk to the classroom, as I recall, frequently about the, the aesthetics mm -hmm. of what we got to look at from our window and, and 
to appreciate that, you know, or I, at least I would share how I appreciated it. And if they appreciated it, it'd be great. And if they didn't, then maybe at some point in time, time that would be uh, more amenable to that process, you know. So that to me is sort of how I remember some of that, uh, uh, the, the, the Zen type of, of experiences being shared and telling stories and stuff. You know, some of my interactions with people around the, around the, the nation. Mm-hmm. So, and the labyrinth was really sort of cool because mm-hmm. to me that sort of sort of was uh, a process of of being in the present moment. Perhaps you know, mm-hmm. is part of how I looked at that. Um, seeking uh, inner harmony because so much of what we do creates disharmony, and that was the part that I was trying to trying to assuage for myself was to was to find ways to deal with the disharmony in in my in my life mm. and to try to find that harmony and hopefully pass some of those those lessons those those words those thoughts um, concepts on to the students that uh, that I interacted with on a regular basis you know mm. Well, I can just say I have chills hearing to the hearing you speak about that crab apple tree in specific because of course I remember when we were you know doing our experiments with the butterflies and the caterpillars we'd always have to look up at the tree and I can remember that frame looking exactly what our classroom looked like it's sealed into my mind so thanks for that. <laughs> oh, that's amazing, isn't it? I would love to just hear I mean you mentioned so many tidbits in there of the not only the cancer but then also the labyrinth and this overall feeling of just trying to really find that balance for yourself can you just start from the top of the story i can Great. yeah i can you know um i think running is one of the places we're going to go with this also right sure yes i was thinking about since we've talked last uh why people make a decision to run okay (laughs) and there's lots of lots of reasons why people do that um over the years i've talked with a lot of running groups uh, i've shared my story of cancer and uh and earlier on before that i was working on a doctorate in exercise physiology at the university of minnesota so the american lung association running club had me come in and talk with their uh new trainees that were running their first marathon and and 12 to 13 weeks and share exercise physiology type stuff. And eventually as I had more life experiences that turned into a, uh, uh, exercise physiology, philosophy and psychology type of a, of an experience. Cause I, I mentioned earned my master's degree in, in counseling psychology. Also, some of you haven't started running until maybe, uh, you know, six, eight weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of reasons. Of course, some people just gotten divorced or some people had a death in the family or some people were overweight to sculpt their body, all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff. And I was thinking about this. The reason in all those conversations were I've never had someone to give the reason of why uh, for the same as why I started running. Mm-hmm. And my first experience with running was as a survival mechanism hmm. which is which is sort of interesting you know and and so my earliest like when i was like i remember like when i was you know one and a half to two years old hmm. is is waking up in the morning and understanding that that <laughs> i had to be 
you know, sort of quick on my feet that day. My mm-hmm. mother was was uh, suffered from post um, the postpartum blues. Okay, mm-hmm. and she was depressed for uh, most of the first five years of my life. Mm-hmm. And and we lived on a farm, so she was isolated. The nearest neighbor was you know three quarters of a mile away, and Mary had twelve children, so she wasn't incredibly social. And my dad was out in the field oftentimes. So my mom, she get angry, she get she get depressed, she get angry because she was so isolated. And that anger sometimes would turn to rage, and then that rage was primarily directed at me. I had an older sister; she was eighteen months older than I was. But Joe, and my mom, tend to get on pretty well. So I knew that if I wanted to survive, if I wanted to avoid the physical abuse from her, I had to run away from her. Wow. I had to escape from her, mm-hmm. and and. In many ways, I, I tend to believe that that is part of the reason why I became sort of a good runner, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had that, that early motivation to understand that I had to get to this plot, spot before she did, or else she was going to capture me, and it was going to be a you know, serious consequence. So that running piece was, was sort of crucial for me, and when I think about the influences in my life, my mom and dad were two of the most important influences in my life. Mm-hmm. My dad was amazing. I never understood why my parents got married, quite frankly, Laura, because my mom was, as I described, she was in the early stage of her life, she was just mean, she was physically abusive. Yeah. Um, after she, she got, when I was almost five, she, the, the last occurrence when she physically uh, abused me occurred, and Thankfully, my dad happened to come in early from the fields like at 8.30 in the morning, and he caught her. Um, he stopped her from uh, the, the, the beating that she was giving me at that time. Um, she took my dad, took myself and my mom and my sister into the, uh, the doctor's office. And I remember the nurses and the doctors you know, repairing my... Uh, the, uh, the cuts and, and stuff on my back mm. and the doctor saying to my dad, Erlen, this has to stop or she is going to kill this boy. And the next day she left. The next day they sent her to what's called an insane asylum. Mm. And then she went to the Cherokee insane asylum about 40 miles away from us. They took her to a, a private uh, psychiatrist in Des Moines. And when she came back, she'd gone for 12 weeks, and those was the most glorious 12 weeks of my life <laughs> up until then. <laughs> Unbelievable. I woke up without any angst, any stress. Uh, that sense of vigilance uh, uh, disappeared for a while. When she came back, the deal was that she was going to come back and stay. She was not going to be able to abuse me anymore physically. Mm. And so I never had to endure any physical abuse from her from that point forward. From there on, it just became verbal abuse, you know? Wow. So my dad loved my mom dearly. He was, you know, he was he was this great, incredible guy, he was a great athlete. Uh, he was at Pearl Harbor on you know, December seventh, nineteen forty one. So he'd experienced the war, and, mm-hmm. and uh, he just he was part of that great generation. I dearly loved him, and he and my mom were opposites. Because <laughs> <laughs> at this point, in my life these was they were opposites, mm-hmm. and what I learned from my dad was how to be, how I wanted to be as a person. Mm. And what I learned from my mom is how I didn't want to be. So can I ask, like, what, what did that feel like at that point? Being able to just have such a harsh, you know, those two ends of such an extreme at such a young age. You know, I didn't know at that time, I didn't know how to process it quite frankly, Laura. 
Yeah. And I can say, quite honestly, I really didn't know how to process that. I didn't. I didn't process it in a, in in close its entirety until I was fifty eight years old. Sure. And sort of at that point in time, my life's you know just sort of had time to sit back and and uh, take in all of this information and slowly but surely put the pieces together. Conversations I'd had with aunts, with great aunts, um, people that were were available in our in in the, you know, our family at that time that those things were happening and could share with me, you know, more of the details that had escaped me or that uh, I tended to repress. So it wasn't until later that that happened. And I can, I clearly remember when it did happen. I was in Pebble Beach in in July of 19, I see in 2008. And I remember waking up in bed at like 11 o'clock one night and that whole scene of that last time that she that she physically beat me yeah. was right in front of me and it was like I just started crying and within like 30 seconds I said and I forgive you mom wow and, yeah and that was, that was like was the most powerful thing because I had I'd never I never considered that I needed to forgive her. I think I was always, and, and also I think with that came, I forgave myself. Yeah. Because I always thought that was my fault that she beat me. It was because I was, you know, kinesthetic, I was active, and, and uh, she didn't beat my sister, so it had to be me, you know. And, and so, you know, that, you know, that was a long time to live with that kind of, kind of trauma at the age of 58 and then finally finally put it together you know so and forgiving yourself for something like that even all that time it just speaks of how you know that trauma that you're mentioning and those effects that you have from it those go underneath that rationality because a 58 year old man knows that a young boy has done nothing wrong but it takes you know, it's it's so hard to know those lessons that are coming through it without a little bit of time. Exactly right, Laura. And that's the first time in my life that I said to myself, it wasn't your fault, Mike. Yeah. So that part was was, was really powerful, you know. Um so that's where my early my earliest experiences with running was a great form of survival. Um <laughs> But as I uh, continued mm-hmm. on and you know started, I became a pretty good runner at one time. You know, qualified the Olympic Trials Marathon in 1979 and ran in the Olympic Trials Marathon in 1980. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was two years, <laughs> two years after that that I got cancer for the first time. And that was just it was it was uh, oh my god. I, I, I had the surgery, I think, four days before the first Twin Cities Marathon in, mm. in 1982. And I uh, broke my heart because I was so ready to run. Mm. I was in the best shape of my life, and, and I wanted to run that marathon so bad, I was thought I was ready for a breakthrough to uh, drop under 220 in the marathon. And uh, it didn't happen. Instead, I snuck out of the hospital at Hennepin County and walked to the starting line and... and uh, the race director Jack Moran dedicated the race to me. Wow. You know, people took off and I went back to the hospital. And it, and it hmm. upended my life. Um, after that, 
I had allergies that I'd never had before. I couldn't train very much um, for years. You know, it took almost five years where I could train at a, a level sort of close to what I'd been at before. So... It just I rips would, it I, from you. <laughs> it really did. And it took me a, quite a while until I, I, I discovered that I... Uh, what I was trying to do when I got out of the hospital, I was in the hospital for like nine days, maybe. And I started running as soon as I got out. And uh, within uh, a week after that, I did my first 100 mile week again. And I was trying to control the cancer. I wanted to be in control of it, which is pretty typical, I think, for for a lot of cancer patients, you know. And um, so much... I just kept doing that and kept pushing and pushing. And, and and eventually what happened is I came to discover that, and this took a long time. This was back, ended up being 1990 after I had cancer again. And I went to, to California um, to really sort of identify cancer as being a part of me. Hmm. You know, it's not like the virus. I mean, this virus comes from other people and, mm-hmm. it, and, it, and it can infect us. The cancer it is within us. And I, I sort of tend to believe that we're born uh, predisposed to certain diseases, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I think my predisposition in some ways was to is to melanoma. So what I what I came to, dis- to decide is, I mean, if this is part of you, why would you hate something that is truly? A, a, a part of you, a part of me, and I, it, it gave me a different perspective on it. Um, and I didn't see it as an enemy. Um, I just saw it as uh, uh, an entity that uh, we would find a way to live together or die together. You know, wow. <laughs> either one way or the other, right? Well, <clears throat> well, I'm just thinking, just a couple years or maybe days, even before this cancer had taken you know what you've worked so hard of and you had that moment of just seeing exactly what it could rip for you rip from your life from you and then go forward just a couple of years and you have to see that it's actually part of you (laughs) how did that I don't know I don't know if I would be able to reconcile that well that that, the process took a long time because it was 1982 is when I had the first cancer and then Late 1989 is when the cancer recurred, and at that point it became um, the first time I had a, uh, an excision on my right shoulder, about a 30 square inch um, skin graft. Uh, that was a level four uh, melanoma on the Clark scale, and in 19, late 1989 it was level five, which means it becomes systemic, and and that was the point where I was basically doctors said you know melanoma patients that are level five don't have very long to live. You know, you're lucky uh, three to six months, perhaps. And at that point, I started looking at other alternatives. And that's when I um, I really started to um, study and use macrobiotics. And uh, January 1st, 1990, I left Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mm-hmm drove out to San Diego, lived with my aunt in San Diego, went to the Gerson Treatment Center in Chula Vista, um, Tijuana, across the borders where they do a lot of the treatments. Um, spent a few weeks up there, then went up to L.A. My uncle and aunt lived in Hollywood, as we talked about earlier. Went to the wellness community and picked up some things from the wellness community, particularly like, like visualization type of things, you know? Mm. And, uh, and 
then I moved to uh, to Monterey, and uh, I lived in Pebble Beach. And there's sort of a, you know extensive story that go with goes with that. But in essence, what happened is I started to um, I started the macrobiotic diet. My aunt, and uncle in in LA helped me with you know buying uh, the items that I needed to consume yeah. and helping prepare them for me. And they became an integral part in my healing, quite frankly, a lot of true routine. Well, yeah, I'm going to ask you to talk more about that, too. <laughs> and uh, and so the the macrobiotic piece was, I mean, there's the nutritional aspect of it, but then there's that other part that I already sort of alluded to with regards to to how we value other um, pieces, animate and inanimate objects, creatures in our in our in our world, you know, and that was enlightening. So reading about the macrobiotics, some of the Zen Buddhism, the Taoism, um, one of the most significant books I read was called Rolling Thunder by Doug Boyd. Mm -hmm. And Doug Boyd worked for the Menninger Foundation, which at that time was in Kansas. And they they did a lot of psychology, psychiatry type stuff there. And one of the projects that he was on that they were doing was looking at how different cultures or ethnicities in the uh, in the world looked at healing and mm -hmm. what their healers did, but they hadn't done anything with Native Americans, you mm -hmm. know. So he went there's a guy named Rolling Thunder who lived near mm -hmm. Elko, Elko, Nevada, and he was a medicine man. Uh, he was a Cherokee on and the Cherokee tribe, but he, he moved to Nevada and his wife was in the Shoshone um, tribe, Western Shoshone, I believe. And so he lived there and Doug Boyd went and, and spent over the course of, I think a couple, three years spent, you know, working probably 12 to 18 months following rolling thunder around and, and living with him and experiencing what he did. And that was so significant because what he, you know, like he was like, communicating with plants and communicating mm. with insects and and it just totally opened up my world with regards to changing my beliefs about who was more important and who required or should be uh, allocated more resources um, or grace if you will in in our in our world mm. and uh it was it was deeply significant and impactful for me, Laura. Mm -hmm. The macro diet, I think I understand just from kind of my like plant studies, and there's so much spirituality. I I think that my science studies in school made me more spiritual than any kind of religion I had growing up. Isn't that interesting? Right, I know it was just hearing about those, you know how the root of one plant, however far it goes down in the cation exchange that those roots have it all follows like the same pattern that we see in the universe and then also further down in the soil and the atmosphere i don't know it's it's all and i and i'm curious about what that did for your body what it may have how, how that may have been related i don't know if there was that kind of spiritual aspect Sure. The, the macrobiotic diet certainly is, uh, it's, it's sort of like a vegan diet in many ways. Um, uh, no meat in it, et cetera. But um, part of it, part of that is 
the, the spirituality part of it was was a piece that moved me and and so i got one of the things i learned is like when i prepare my food i mean there's certain containers that you should use and shouldn't use and you use a wooden spoon you stir you stir your uh when you have stuff in a in heating you stir it uh you know clockwise and and the most important part for me was when you're doing that preparation what you do is you think all of those plants and animals, if it's animals you're eating, but primarily it's plants, mm. you thank them for having given their life for my sustenance. Mm. So in other words, they are living, there's this the integrity piece that is their existence is now living through my being. Mm. And so how do I honor that? You know, well, I want to, I want to live a life that's, that's, that's as, as full of integrity, as full of kindness, that is full of grace, that is as harmonious as it can be. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the, that was one of the, that was the, probably the biggest part of that, of the macrobiotics that I took from that, Laura, was, was that sense of, of remembering every time I eat, something gave its life for my sustenance. Mm-hmm. And it just, and very simply thank them, thank them for that, you know? I am, I'm just so curious. You are one of the kind, you are like one of the kindest people I've known and you have changed my life in countless, countless ways. Even hearing that you had such a period of such sadness is so surprising to me. But how do you deal with that kind of pressure? (laughs) I think of when I tell people like, oh, I don't want to eat a burger because I care about this ounce of carbon. I don't know, how do you take those principles and feel so free by it instead of feeling pressured and weighted down by these, I don't know, these high principles that you live with. <laughs> That's a great question, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I allow myself, you know, I think that the concept of per, uh, perfection comes into play a little bit here, maybe. Yeah. And that I don't have to be perfect. I've given myself permission to not be perfect in the way that I move through my world. Um, so if that means that I'm at somebody's house and, and they have salmon and I, I feel like having a, you know, a, a piece of salmon, yeah. I'll eat the salmon, but I still make sure that I don't <laughs> think that's, that's fish for having, having given us life uh, for me. So it's just, it's that sense of not, I don't have to, I don't have to adhere to this 100%. It does not have to be perfect, but I try to be as true to it because I know that I, when I was do macrobiotics purely, Laura, mm. I have never felt better mm. physically than when I've done that. Wow. Yeah. Even to answer your question, even to follow that question, did it sort of answer your question about that? Yeah, of course. Okay. Wow, like in this last half a year, from what it sounds, you've been able to like experience all these different kinds of thought patterns and experiences and and you're feeling alive and excited about it. But then you still have this deadline coming up, so to speak, which we know, thankfully, you passed. <laughs> but 
how how did that feel for you being so excited about these new things that you were learning in such a short time but then still seeing this deadline that so it was sort of a coming together of all of that of starting to look at the world in a different place in a different way and so when i left la and went up to monterey i was looking for a place to be i was i was pretty close to the end of my life at that point because remember i Right, six more months. September was when I was diagnosed of ninety uh, eighty nine. So I'm into February. So I'm I'm pretty close to the end of that time, and it felt like it. And I was really sort of thinking of a passive form of well, not passive, one passive suicide. I mean, I was looking for a way to end my life. Yeah. Because you're, I mean, at it. I you know, my mood swings were pretty pretty broad. Mm-hmm. You know, some days I was or. No, some days, some minutes mm-hmm. on the day, I was I was sort of positive and thinking, you know, things might work out. And, and most of the other time, I was just I was depressed, and discouraged, and just wanted to end it because I had physical pain, I had emotional pain, um, and just there was a lot of a lot of things going on with that. So, mm-hmm. um, for the most part, I was close to close to wanting my life to end just mm-hmm. because I was I was tired of of all that all the pain. All the angst, and I'm not, and it's not just the physical pain, but the psychological pain. All of it. So when I, when I was in LA, a, a friend that I met said, when you get to, to Monterey, you have to go down to Julie Pfeiffer Burns State Beach. Mm-hmm. It's just a, off Highway 1, uh, you know, a couple miles south of the village of Big Sur. And so I went there pretty soon after I went up to Monterey. I was there a day or two, and I went to that beach. I met this lady while I was on the beach. This white-haired woman came walking up to me. She, was, she, she and I were the only people on the beach. Mm-hmm. And we started talking. And it's like, like this, this, this lady, mm-hmm. you know, just, I mean, she, she, it was like we're almost melded, almost mm-hmm. one, you know. And and we talked about I was getting divorced, I was I was had cancer, uh, I was close to dying, and and she sort of helped bring some things together for me with regard to saying, here's what's going on in your in your life right now, Mike. She said you have the power to heal yourself, I believe, but you have to decide if you want to do that. She said you have you you're. You have this agricultural background. You're used to having your hands, your feet in the dirt, watching plants grow, helping nurture animals, etc. And and now you you know you live in the concrete jungle, hmm. and you've gotten away from all of that. Secondly, you used to uh, you, the career path that you've chosen recently is is misdirected. You you aren't interacting with people in a meaningful, significant way. Um, that that really. Uh, tends to fill you up that gives you energy energy that helps you to feel like you're a contributing member of, of society mm-hmm. and um she said you need to you need to reconnect with the earth you need to eliminate the negatives in your life and you need to find something that you can do that will be significant for you that will make you feel like you're making a contribution mm-hmm. so that was that was a part of that conversation and that Later that day, I left there, and I go into Monterey, and I, I'm seeing this. There's a Surrey, a four-wheel Surrey in the back. It has oh, ad, wow. advertising for uh, adventure business. And, it's, and they have kayaks and everything. And so I went to that store, mm-hmm. and I was talking with the manager, Dana, 
and she was telling me about, you know, what the kayaking was. And she said, why don't you come back tomorrow and go out? And I came back the next day, and she had quit her job. Hmm. So the manager, just a small little, Frank Knight is the guy that owns the venture <laughs> by the sea. Yeah. And so I was talking with Frank about it, and, <laughs> and it ended up the next day he hired me wow. to be his manager of that little, little, little store location. So... You walk across the street, and there's where the boats were. And I was—I found myself the next day. I was standing barefooted, hmm. with a pair of shorts, t-shirt on, in the water, in the sand, teaching people about the ocean, how to kayak, yeah. and eventually teaching them about all the natural history of Monterey. Because I started taking classes at Monterey Bay Aquarium. Hmm. Um, I became a docent at the aquarium. I became sort of a part of the community, you know. Um, and so that was my significance of handing stuff, giving something back to the community, environmentalism, talking about conservation, that type of stuff, and teaching them about kayaking. Um, so yeah. these things that that I that had been missing in my life now became present in my life. And I think coupling that with the macrobiotic diet that I was rigorously uh, uh, staying with, um, taking the negatives out of my life, um, I started to run a little bit more. And uh, I just sort of, it was an attitudinal adjustment that uh, I, you know, I think I said, I, I want to live if I can. I want to make this happen. You know? mm. And slowly but surely it did. Oh my God. Who was that person on the beach? Just an oracle? <laughs> Like, Your guess is probably as good as mine. I I went back whenever I had a day off. I I was there for almost two more years. I would go back to that beach looking for her. I never saw her again. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm so after the kayaking and Monterey. Is that when you returned to Minnesota to teach? Yeah, I was. Uh, I finished up kayaking in uh, late summer of. Uh, of 91 and I moved back and I actually came back not to teach but to uh, but to um, take classes at the Alfred Adler Institute um, I'd taken a couple before I went out to California but Adler was a psychiatrist that uh, lived in Vienna he died in 1937 but uh, he and Jung and uh, Freud were, were uh, together in Vienna at that, that time frame it was just mm-hmm. a, an amazing time for psychiatry and psychology and, and um so I came back to go to the Adrian Institute because I wanted I wanted to be uh, a psychotherapist. You know? mm. yeah. So I came back. I was taking classes in the evenings and weekends, and I was working as a painter primarily mm. um, for this guy full time during the day. And then I started doing a little bit of substitute teaching uh, in the wintertime, and I subbed any diner. I got to I was at Highlands one day and and substituted for Joanne Farley. Um, and of course, Andy Davies was in the classroom as the as a paraprofessional, and and so we got through that day, and I talked with Andy a little bit about it, and then Joanne came back, and she chatted with Andy about me, and a few days later, I was there for somebody else, and Joanne cornered me, and she asked me what was going on in my world, and we talked more, and had lunch a couple times, dinner a couple times, and, and eventually, that next year, then, I applied for the full-time position at Highlands, quite frankly, thinking that I was only going to be for one or two years until I finished my degree because mm. I, I was going to finish my degree in the, in the fall of 1994. Okay. Uh, and, and I did. Um, so there's a, I, I continued after I got my degree in, in October of 94, 
I was teaching full time at Highlands. I leave at like four thirty, five o'clock in the afternoon. I go out to uh, a clinic I was uh, employed at in Eden Prairie, mm-hmm. and I would do therapy for three, four hours a day. Okay, for the rest of the day. So, at the end of that, you know, about eight, nine months, the end of that next summer, I had to decide. I had to do one or the other. And by that time, the CP program had become so ingrained and so important to me mm-hmm. that I really felt that I could impact people more completely by being in CP than I could by being a therapist. Wow. So I gave up the therapy. Wow. Yeah. Looking back, what do you think of that decision? Just a decision or the right one? <laughs> Perfect decision. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I want to know people like you, you know, mm-hmm. um, they have all the, all the, all the amazing students and parents that I've interacted with, uh, since I've been at Highlands and been part of big, big projects and stuff, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. we pack food, you know, in December every year and, and some of the surface learning projects that we did, you know, soap for hope that, that, you know, reach, you know, reached out to people in Haiti that, uh, of all things, needed soap. You know, I mean, mm. just I mean, those types of things were so significant that I would have never had an opportunity to do if I'd gone into the therapy. Mm. Highlands is a really special place. Oh, yeah, it's I mean, absolutely remarkable. So, I guess was elementary school a bit of a you just fell into it or was that something that you started to really fall in love with? It's just, I don't know, that age of kids. <laughs> I'm probably more comfortable with children than I am with adults hmm. to be quite, quite frank. Okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I feel the same. Um, <laughs> good. Um, the, you know, sometimes first and second graders can get on my nerves a little bit, you know, because <laughs> They're a little twitchy. (laughs) (laughs) Like a can of worms, Joanne used to call them. But I really, really loved that intermediate class of third, fourth, and fifth graders, Laura, Mm. because we had they got to the point where we could have some really meaningful, significant conversations. And uh, and I love that part of being able to share some of what I had experienced, uh, some of the philosophies that I was. acquainted with mm-hmm. and not to the point of trying to sell anybody this is no. what you have to do but for the point of this, this is another way to look at the world you know mm-hmm. um take what works for you it doesn't work for you you know throw away mm-hmm. um so that part i really really loved and we we had a, an incredible staff at highlands back at that point in time with peter hodney being mm-hmm. the principal and we we're, we're doing some amazing stuff with conflict resolution cooperative learning restitution, self-discipline, thematic instruction. There's all these things that we were doing that was cutting edge that other schools in the district started to do after we had uh, had implemented it. It's so special. Just look back, and I my memories from those classrooms are so vivid and so strong, and I find I'm really in the minority, unfortunately, when I talk with other people. I think it was just in that kind of classroom, I felt, I never felt underestimated and I always felt like I was being spoken to like an adult. Yeah. Yeah. 
which probably I don't know what the consequences of that are but I remember it I know that feeling of feeling like even if even if it were a silly story and we were talking about like women's fashion shoes and trying to relate it to something that might be a little bit bigger I those those hit me like those lessons are still there mm-hmm. one of my goals was to never talk down to children I, I, I believe that was a huge mistake that, that children are much more capable of understanding intellectual, uh, emotional uh, issues that we uh, might, uh, as an adult, give them credit for. I didn't change my vocabulary at all. And if people didn't understand a word that I used, uh, I expected or anticipated they would ask, you know, what, what's that word? Plethora. What does that mean anyway? You know, and, and I love that 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 kids were willing to do that and then add that to their own vocabulary and, and incorporate that in their writing. You know, I mean, that's that's uh, that's how we grow. That's um, sort of a a beautiful way of uh, organically uh, improving our our brain power. <laughs> That's so funny. I think uh, the reputation in CP was that Mike's class, your class, was always the strictest. <laughs> and it was probably just because we had to ask the most questions. I mean, do you think, huh, I don't know, that uh, that uh, emotional inter- understanding that kids have and that just like blatant curiosity, do you think part of that is just, I don't know, no shame in asking questions? I hope so. Yeah. You know, it was certainly, certainly the point that I, I, I wanted to create was a sense of there's no such thing as a stupid question unless, of course, the answer been given five seconds before, and then you might want to think that oh, maybe not listen as well as you should, but that's part of the learning also. But to put it out there for kids to, uh, I had high expectations for kids, and and um, if if they didn't want to the high expectations were going to be met by hard work. There's no doubt about it. Mm. And so if, a, you know, if some family thought that their child was working too hard and had too much, too much classwork to do that, they'd come and talk. They said, okay, I don't care. I just write down on a piece of paper that you don't want your child to do this, yeah. this math or this, this spelling <laughs> or this writing. Just, I want it documented that it's your decision, not mine. I'm totally fine with that. You, just, you, know, you write it down and then at the, you know, the principal asking what's going on, you know, how come this child, you know, is having trouble or you come back in a year and say, why is my child unable to do math? They say, well, remember when you wanted your child to not do this math stuff? It might be the reason why. So put it back <laughs> on the parents as much as possible and the child. Because the child's going to listen to that conversation too. I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not here. I'm not teaching this stuff because I don't know it. Yeah. I'm because I think it's important that you learn this because you're going to use it at some point in time in your life. And um, that's why it's out there. So I don't know about, you know, I get that sense sometimes that that kids in other classes thought I was was really strict and everything. And I know I was serious. I mean, maybe that's part of it. I mean, I had a good sense of humor. I think at times. Oh, no. I never never thought of it as strict. (laughs) Did you? No. That's that's good. I'm glad to hear that. No, not at all. But I also, I also should have spent more time on my math homework. I'm still, it's still those fourth grade, those math tests that I would just freak out and just not want to do, not want to study for. I still am bad at my times tables. So. Yeah. Um, 
I'm curious, like, what kind of advice... Oh, you're just this whole beacon of wisdom. Like, what advice would you give to... I think I would be curious to hear what you tell to parents or to maybe kids. And then also, say you were back in that part of your life in the beach and you were to find all of that advice, put it into one parcel, how would you express that? Or do you think that's impossible? Uh, that's a really good question. Let me, let, me, let me think about that just a moment. The, uh, an, an answer to parents or students would be never do for a child what they can do for themselves. Hmm. Okay, so that's, that's, that's uh, an answer that has to that. Yeah. Um, Taking, you know, the, the experience from the beach, I think, comes down to um, we have, the, we have, there's a lot more depth to who we are than what we sometimes give ourselves credit for, or from what other members of our society give us credit for. I'm sort of thinking dimensional, you know, two-dimensional, three-dimensional. How many dimensions are there out there, you know? Mm, yeah. And and what power do we have within ourselves to to heal, okay? Um, I think that's a crucial piece. One of the things that really irritated me, annoyed me about the medical profession when I had cancer, and I started in 1982 and, and, and then get the, uh, another diagnosis in 1989, was the use of the word terminal, you know, like you have terminal cancer. Mm. And it's like, I hated that term. And, and I started changing that to use to, to life threatening. Mm. And, and I, I was so disappointed and discouraged that the medical profession at that time, at least because that was in the 1980s, they, they, they used the word terminal, I think, because they didn't want to disappoint somebody. They didn't mm. want to disappoint a patient. So uh, they, 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 what they did is they took away your hope. Yeah. You hear terminal, you say, like, I am going to die. It doesn't matter what I do. I am going to die. Mm. Well, that's BS, you know? Mm. And and that's the part that was just so, um, that sort of jumped out at me, is taking that sense of hope away from people when they needed it most. Yeah. Now, the good thing is that that's changed. It's, it's changing. When I was in, in Monterey during the in the, in the early 90s, I, I, I did the races in the community, and uh, at those races, I would interact with uh, some a, a couple of students, uh, couple, a couple of men who were um, doctors. They're they're working uh, at UC Davis um, and doing their residency there, and and they talked me about cancer, my my experience with cancer, and and I said, I, I told them what I just told you with regards to use of words, uh, taking away hope. And they said, at that point, I, I'm almost sure they said, that is what we're just, just starting to scratch the surface on at UC Davis is, is how our medical professionals talk with patients, the words they use, and making sure that we don't take away their sense of hope and ability to, uh, to for themselves to be able to care for themselves and heal themselves. You know? right. So it was really cool to hear that, and and um, you know to see that eventually, that that belief started to spread across the United States uh, into into other medical practices also. Hmm. Yeah, 
I, so what? Oh my god. That hope. I'm getting chills because I just, I can't imagine what it was like for your position, but I know in my own life when I have just been so overwhelmed with depression or even just those like suicidal ideations, all of those, the last thing that I can think about is hope. <laughs> and I think with a little bit of time and now like so much perspective looking back at that, I'm like, okay, yeah, I feel hopeful. That's what I have now. That's a wonderful way to be. But that A to B feels, I don't, like, what would you, what was your first step on that from utter despair to actually starting to see some hope in a terminal cancer? Maybe it wasn't one step. I don't, I don't, I, I don't think it was. I think uh, it was a, a combination of things, but you eventually get into the point of acceptance, you know, and, and for me, it had to be, I had to stop fighting the cancer for one thing, I think, you know, um, just to, just to accept that cancer was a part of who I am. Mm. It's a part of me. It is physically a part of me. It's like, I wouldn't just go in and cut out my kidney or something. Mm. You know, you, you, uh, and, and I know that we can do that with cancer sometimes we can, we can cut it out, but at this point, you know, you can't cut out melanoma when it's, when it's, uh, when it's in, infused in your, uh, you know, the lining of, of your internal organs, you, you can't take that lining out, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so what do you do? How do you go about that process of, 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 of being at peace? In essence, of finding harmony with where you're at, and and that took that took, you know, lots of conversations with lots of people. It took a lot of reading. Um, being willing to do some of the, the legwork of my own, uh, you know, for, you know, rolling thunder, for instance, the macrobiotics, uh, for instance, uh, reading the book, Gilda Radner's book, it's always something, you know, that's an important book too, because she dealt with humor, you know, and that's one of the things that different people talk about is that when you're, when you're ill, we have mm. a, a, a life-threatening yeah. disease, you need to find humor in your life. And I think oh. that's for us right now, these days when we're, when we're sitting at home and we're in quarantine, you're trying to, you know, you're, you're, you're sitting on a Friday night at 11 o'clock and you're going crazy. You wonder if you're going crazy. What do you do with that? You know, and humor is a great way to deal with that. Yeah. So, and that's a great book I'd recommend. It's always something. Does it? That's uh, Gilda Radner died of ovarian cancer. You might know that, but she was married to uh, Mel Brooks, I believe. Mm -hmm. I remember, right? And, and this book is about, it's this beautiful love story about their life, you know, and, and how she gets cancer and, and his support for that, her support for him, because both of them needed each other. And uh, it was just, it was just beautiful. There was pages, I was laughing like crazy. Mm. And I turned the page, I was crying like crazy because there's, there's so much sadness and, and, and pathos. And yet there's this other, other piece where you're just absolutely joyous, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm, I mean, you'll appreciate this. I'm, I'm really trying to stay, keep those low highs and those high lows in quarantine, try to just keep it as neutral as possible. But those extreme feelings are really coming out. I'm laughing until I'm peeing at nothing by myself in my apartment sitting alone. And then also sobbing when Dumbledore dies in book six. So... <laughs> Okay, Lord, you find yourself 
you you find yourself being more emotional here in quarantine. Like there's times when you cry at something. Say, Why in the world am I crying about that? Uh, it just it's so spontaneous. I feel like that's how my emotions feel. I feel like now that I don't have like the nine to seven or you know I can. I'm still waking up on time. I'm still going to bed like a normal person and eating three meals a day. But everything else just feels so spontaneous. Like, I might feel so happy for no reason and then really just kind of, like, sad about nothing else later. But I don't know. It feels it feels just so much more natural. You know, going a little bit back to this, like, the days have a more natural rhythm than just a beginning and an end. So... I don't, I don't know. Do you feel that? But I, 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 I got an explanation for that the other day. Was an article I read, this psychologist said that she's talked with more people in the last, since this quarantine stuff happened, and, and the same dynamic. And she said how she described it is it's a form of self-soothing. Hmm. So you don't have, like, I don't have anybody. I can't go and give a hug to somebody or, hmm. you know, have a face-to-face conversation. So that's my thing. That's my hug. It's sort of like, in a way, of embracing yourself and and uh, hugging yourself and and find this, this the comfort from uh, from a short little cry. Yeah. Wow. How interesting the ways that we adapt right. to our circumstances. You know. Uh, so quickly too. Mm-hmm. I mean, this happened in thirty-six hours. <laughs> Everything mm-hmm. just shut down. And then I found, you know, by, so, I mean, just from LA's example, we all were work from home starting Friday. By Tuesday, I felt like it was almost back to normal by, like, a business standpoint. Not even just technology, but I'm just, it's, it's surprising. It's actually another thing to think about that our, those natural instincts are kind of coming out a little bit slower. (laughs) Maybe that's something telling that us plugging immediately right back in and getting things so started up was right right i mean we weren't people were crying on the first day but not because of self-soothing it was just pure fear (laughs) um you know during the daytime you know when i get up i get up around 5 5 30 in the morning and i work until four o'clock in the afternoon and then I go for my run and then I eat and and then normally I would go and I would interact with other human beings, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's when I'm alone and when I haven't at the end of the day I haven't been out socializing because I'm not supposed to do that. And I start to my this tape starts playing in my head that isn't exactly the most positive tape, you know? Mm-hmm. And and that's the part, that's the time when when I start to, I, I start to, uh, I start to spin out of what feels like out of control. And uh, mm-hmm. I have to, I have to find a way to, uh, I have to change that. I have to, I have to consciously say, change the tape, Mike. Mm-hmm. Yep. What are you going to put in there right now? Okay, because if I don't, it just keeps spinning. And, and sometimes, you know, unfortunately for me, this stuff happens. Like at, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and all my friends here that I would call are, you know, I wouldn't call me Deb Pekarik at 10, yeah. 11 o'clock.
night because she got you know her daughters and her husband and you know her dog and everything. So I'm I'm limited in that respect with regard to being able to mm. process it with somebody. But that that does help me to mm. be able to do that too. I hope you have somebody like that. Yeah, no, of course. And there's something this the what is it nine seconds six seconds that you have to um take those negative thoughts that are just like rolling in your head and start to just physically rewire them mm-hmm. i don't know yeah i'm doing that too <laughs> good good uh, i mean what so i mean just like in a i don't even know how to possibly conclude all this but have there been things from especially with the running and especially with the cancer um, that there are just lessons in there that you had no idea would be so applicable to right now? Yeah, I had, yeah, I, the, the, the cancer and in particular have just been so significant for me. Um, and it has created uh, a lot of, big, big lessons for me to um, sort of apply to the rest of my life. Uh, running is, running. I mean, it's, that's great because it's, you have the discipline, the motivation, setting goals. You know, that was, I mean, I never set goals until I, I started running seriously hmm. in 1974. You know, and, and at that point, I discovered the, the power of that and, uh, and that had an amazing effect on other aspects of my life is to look at that being at highlands highlands was one of the most life-changing experiences for me also laura and and it was because of the 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 people the adults the parents the students the way we were able to do what we were doing peter high was was incredible Mm -hmm. because he gave a staff a, a lot of um say a lot of power in what we did which meant that if we decided we were going to do that that he knew that we were behind it mm-hmm. and we we're going to we we're going to do what we said we we're going to do we we're going to really be committed to it mm-hmm. um i think I like restitution self-discipline is one of those pieces that was just so incredibly significant mm-hmm. and that it was it was how we would look at at a conflict with, uh, you know, between or amongst students, and then how we'd help them to to resolve that in a way where both parties felt that they had won, mm. so that there wasn't a loser, and that and and that was beautiful to see that uh, unravel in front of us. Oh my gosh, uh, mm. or unfold. I guess I should might be a better way to say it to unfold as you watch students who are you know beforehand so upset so angry so adamant that, that all this was the other person's fault that all of a sudden they they, they saw it in a different lens mm-hmm. and they were able to take that learning and apply it to their behaviors outside of that situation i was able to and and that was the key part of it to take those philosophies from rsd and apply them to my personal life outside of school mm-hmm. And it was absolutely wonderful. And, I just, and it's like, I wish I would have known this, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, because it's so powerful. It's, it's so, I mean, I, <laughs> you're not going to believe me, but 
that the conflict resolution bridge. So we had a poster that was on the doorway into the second grade classroom, and I, re I remember it very well. Um, and I actually got to be one of your conflict resolution leaders on the playground, and it wasn't even something that got me bullied. <laughs> um, uh, it's so funny and interesting, like the the arguments that I've gotten into recently or even like in college with my friends i would find myself just going back to what i knew from first grade and that was like my parents advice of just how to be a friend and the conflict resolution bridge of just asking how each people feel about one thing that we are just trying to find resolution on yeah it's so interesting i just i, I like there's a college course i took about it was kind of we had a negotiations thing and it was all about that about how one thing that we're trying to be communicated can be misinterpreted or differently interpreted by in countless different ways. So you just need to say what you feel and what you think about it. That's yeah. that was the first step of the resolution bridge. Am I right? <laughs> you are, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. just it just says it's these these lessons they just keep going and recirculating and I'm like, well, we just I got all of that in first grade. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? No. Yeah. Hmm. And that you remember that, and that you're still applying those those uh, teachings to uh, your interactions with others today, and with your own personal um, uh, experiences. You know, your interpersonal piece. What else are you thinking about, Laura? No, I'm just, there's just so much to be grateful for. I'm so happy to be speaking with you, and it's it's been so long. I'm curious yeah. about, I mean, your state now, so I just, I remember sickness being a part of, like, our relationship. I know that you had more problems with your knees and legs at that, pro at that point. But I'm just wondering, like, your health, kind of what the journey's like now. Well, that's a great question, too. Um, it's changed because, you know, I mean, like, I ran a lot. I, I was serious. I was done. When I moved to the cities in 1980, we were doing 100, 120, 140 mile, miles per week in a cycle of three weeks. And when oh. you get done with the 140 miles, you go back and start at 100 mile a week again. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of years I ran, you know, 4,000 to, you know, 4,500 miles. <laughs> That's crazy. It's a lot of running. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I think I'm someplace around 120,000 miles in my career right now. So my knees in particular took a real uh, beating. They they suffered most of the abuse of, uh, of that strenuous activity. Mm. So I, the, the bottom line is I can't run like I used to. I can't run as much as I used to. You know, mostly two to six miles a day is is about the most that I can do. But I do get out. I run every day. That's um, crazy. At least, at least one mile, but usually two or three miles. Um, that just helps me to clear my head and decompress a little bit from what's going on through the day. Um, the, the biggest part about not being able to run you know, 10, 15 miles is <laughs> I put on weight. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, I got kidney stones, one in each kidney, and and it really kicked the crap out of me. I was, I, I didn't run for a month, and um, I gained weight during that time. It's been really, really hard to 
to um, thousand calories, fifteen hundred calories in a single run. Hmm. So I yeah. miss that. <laughs> That's <laughs> crazy. I miss racing. I, I used to love my competitiveness. Was hmm. was pretty much funneled through through racing and and uh, and that was all what I can see to be a pretty positive aspect because I was racing against friends and yeah. everybody wanted the other guy to do well and uh, if they beat you on a particular day you congratulated them and and if you beat them then the same would happen uh, the other way it's so um, race running it's so funny it's just the most it's probably a very high percentage of like this type A uber competitive goal achieving people who really just want the best for everyone else at the same time. It's so um it's so cordial. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. I've never run a marathon, but I did a half, but I don't know. Okay. No. Do you have an interest in doing a marathon someday? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, well well, I mean, this is part of my whole like mental health thing. Um so I like running. I mean, I'm not like the kind of addict I think that you and like my sister Sarah would be where it's just marathons all the time. Um, and my grandpa was like that too, who just passed. Um, but I really like the half. I really like training for that. Um, but the last three years though, I had, I like developed an eating disorder. I was atypical anorexic. I'm still in recovering from it. So working out i don't know that's another process like it started as that clearing my head um totally just for health and enjoyment and then it became something where my anxiety or maybe those negative thoughts that i had about myself really latched onto and became part of the whole r running wasn't fun anymore it was just about that kind of weight gain um yeah. weight loss so yeah. i lost it you know I, I enjoyed it i lost it for a year now i'm my workouts are a lot more just regulated and I focus a lot more on fun for myself. That's more of my like recovery process. But yeah, I mean, it's a goal. It's like an eating disorder goal for mine to be to a place where I can run maybe another half, maybe marathon isn't for me, but a whole marathon in just like a healthy, normal, fun way again. I do love, I do like running. It'll come back. Do you like it? from the emotional mental process that it affords you or is there other reasons that you enjoy it? I really like the uber alone time of it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm not going for multiple hours runs, but even if it is like a little 40 minutes where it's just me and I get to choose whatever podcast music silence I'm listening to, <laughs> I don't know, it feels very personal. Like a yeah. personal gift, so that that's what I like about it. I don't know the running itself, though. I, I the for someone like you who can just get to twenty two miles and want more, I, I, that that isn't something I can quite relate to. Right, right. Yeah. Well, well, I there's, there's there's always my mother in the back of my head pushing you, know, chasing me, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> You don't have that, right? <laughs> no, none of that. <laughs> no. Uh, Mike, I just, I can't begin to thank you enough for all of this. I'm, I'm so touched and emotionally overwhelmed, and I really miss you. 
Thank you very much for saying that, and thank you for uh, inviting me to be part of uh, this podcast, what we're doing today. Um, there's so many things that you just said that I I agree with. Um, I uh, I texted you the other day, like, you're one of the most remarkable students I've ever had, and that comes from the, you just had this amazing blend of, I call it the pie quotients, <laughs> P standing for passion quotient i intelligence quotient and the e for emotional quotient mm-hmm. and you were absolutely off the charts in the emotional quotient part um uh you were you were so amazing your intra interpersonal awarenesses and those relationships that you had with others as well as with yourself uh intelligence wise you know you were incredibly bright and willing to share that intelligence that knowledge which is really cool you know so please know that you were your presence in our classroom uh continued until the day that i retired wow well you're gonna have to be careful i'm recording this mike (laughs) i'm so flattered that's just so nice Oh, I I think I peaked. I think elementary school was my peak, but I'm I'm happy that it was so well spent. And maybe I asked too much out of you then. <laughs> no, no, really. Um, no. So I, anyway, yeah, and I and I miss you. It's, it's so cool when you when you reconnect. And it's like, oh my gosh, yes, it was so timely. Yeah. Because I was, you know, I just I needed to let you know.